Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Today, we are back to our 101 style folk. University Folk U Radio Shows. Today's show is about archaeology, the science of once and future things. And I am joined in the studio by our neighbor, Dr. Brian Hayden, archaeologist extraordinaire. Brian got his doctoral degree from the University of Toronto and taught archaeology at Simon Fraser University for 40 years and is now a research associate at the University of British Columbia. Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and of course, a professor here at the esteemed Folk University. His archaeological and ethno-archaeological research has taken him to Australia, Southeast Asia, France, Guatemala, Mexico, Ontario, and of course, here to British Columbia. I invite your questions during the show to the Folk University email at u at folku.ca. That's the letter U at F-O-L-K dot C-A, or call in during the break to 250-935-0200 here to the CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio Station. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about today's topic and how you got interested in archaeology? Sure. Um, Well, I thought today we'd uh, basically talk a little bit about what archaeology actually is and maybe what it isn't, and some of the advantages and special features of archaeology. Um, And uh, and then next week, I think we've got a session for next week, I thought we'd talk a little bit more about the archaeology of British Columbia and uh, sort of more about the nuts and bolts of archaeology and... uh, what we can do with the things we find in the ground. So, um, yeah, I, I've, uh, I think I've always been interested in old things. My parents used to take me around antique shops when I was a kid, and uh, I always found them fascinating. And, uh, and when I was growing up, there were a lot of uh, housing developments happening in the neighborhood, too. So the big tracts of land being bulldozed and... And the area I was in, um, was fortunate in that there were uh, rocks that had been transported by glaciers hundreds of kilometers away, and they had fossils in them, little fossil shells and things like that. So you always used to go around to the uh, to the new housing developments and excavations and uh, pick up these rocks with shells in them that were hundreds of millions of years old. Uh, so I, I think I got a little bit hooked on on the on things that were old and in the ground from an early age. 
And then um, when I got to the university, I had uh, nothing to do for the summer, and so I signed up for a field school in archaeology. And it was the best time I ever had in any summer that I had because we were out in, in, the, in the bush and canyon country camping, and I just loved it. And I thought, well, if there's a, if this is a job that can get me into the field for three or four months of the year rather than staying in a lab or something like that, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, I got involved that way. Uh, that was in Colorado. It was at the University of Colorado then. And, um, yeah, it's just been uh, one fascinating thing after the other. I've always enjoyed figuring out puzzles and figuring out why things are the way they are. And archaeology certainly gets you involved in those kinds of questions. And uh, so it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, it's been, there's the opportunity for travel. So I've done a fair amount of that and, and seeing other cultures and uh, just going different places. You get to stay in an area for a while. So it's not like a tourist that you jet in for a week or whatever and then stay in a hotel and leave. No, you, you get to stay with a lot of times families and, uh, and stay in an area for months at a time and really get to know the area and the people there. So it's, for me, it's rewarding in a lot of, a lot of different ways. Um, so, but that being said, um, oh, I'd like to mention too that, uh, you know, when you get into these fields, you usually have to specialize in one thing or another. And there's a lot of different areas that you can specialize in, in uh, archaeology. Um, talk about it in a minute. But uh, the area that I got involved in and that I got, I think, some exceptional training in was the study of stone tools uh, because that's, you know, 99% of what we get in archaeological deposits in some areas. And, um, and so I became sort of an expert in uh, understanding stone tools and interpreting them. And, but um, I also got really involved in in dealing with um, some traditional technologies and cultures. And uh, so when you study ongoing ethnographic, you know, contemporary traditional cultures um, for the purposes of understanding archaeological remains, we call it something called ethnoarchaeology. And that's really what I've done a lot of as well in uh, a number of different areas in the world. And I've always found that really fascinating, making the connection between, you know, the objects that people make and, um, and, f and with, the, uh, with the objects that we find in the ground. So that's what took me to Australia because there were still people there that knew, had made stone tools and could still make stone tools when they were uh, nomadic hunters and gatherers in the desert. And uh, that's what took me to the Maya Highlands, too, because they're still making pottery the way they used to and uh, many other things as well. Uh, so that's another one of my specialties. Um, and uh, I've also, because of the work in Australia, I got very involved with studying hunting and gathering people. So that's been uh, an area that I've focused on a lot. And then... Uh, as I say, you can always try to deal with some of the some of the mysteries and the problems that uh, and the issues that come up. 
So I've dealt a little bit with that as well, some of the theoretical issues like domestication, why, why people started domesticating plants and animals. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's been really interesting. But I want to... I want to throw in a little caveat there and a little warning, and that is uh, it's, it's really easy to romanticize archaeology, especially with films like Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, Indiana Jones and all those kinds of things. And, and a lot of people do romanticize archaeology. They think, oh, finding stuff, you know, golden statues or jade or whatever it happens to be. Um, but that's not really what archaeology is like. You know, it's the Hollywood version. And uh, <laughs> most of the time, uh, we'll talk about context in a few minutes, but uh, most of the time what we get is people's trash, what they throw out, and I'll talk that, about that in a minute too. Uh, and uh, the excavating is long and tedious, and very uninteresting for the most part, although you have to solve problems when you're in the field too, trying to understand what's going on in the ground. Um, but it's, it's long, and it's, it's not what I would call exciting for the most part. Every once in a while, you get something. But between those moments is long, tedious periods of time. And, uh, and then after you dig them up comes the analysis. And people say, oh, you need 10 times more um, time to do the analysis of what you dig up is what it took to actually dig it up. I think it's more like 20 or 30 times more. And, uh, and Calvin and Hobbes had one of my favorite uh, cartoon strips uh, about this. And it's got Calvin excavating stuff in the ground and, and the last scene is him saying archaeology must be the most mind-numbing uh, study in the world, you know, <laughs> and, and that's certainly, you know, you can ask a lot of PhD students and they'll certainly tell you that that's exactly what it's like. So, um, yeah, you have to be forewarned that uh, it's a lot of hard work and uh, a lot of, yeah, takes a lot of resources, a lot of time, and uh, there are a lot of bureaucratic requirements and all sorts of things these days. So at any rate, so that's what got me interested in archaeology. And <laughs> so, uh, This is a very practical question. Yeah. But are there jobs in archaeology beyond being a professor, um, which I feel like there's only a limited amount of universities with a limited amount of positions? Yeah. It doesn't feel... Like my daughter recently was like, oh, you know, I think I'd like archaeology, and I right. and I and I, and I felt like I had to immediately email you, <laughs> and and then my second thought was, is that a career path? <laughs> well, certainly there's uh, university positions, as you noted, and also positions in museums. But most archaeology graduates these days end up in consulting because any big development project has to have an archaeological assessment and a lot of excavations before any uh, construction proceeds. Uh, and so that takes a lot of resources and time and personnel. And that's where a lot of, because there's a lot of development happening all the time, um, especially if uh, they're getting into grave sites and things like that. 
Um, so there's quite a bit of opportunity in those domains. And then there's, you know, if you want to freelance write, write books or articles and things like that, there's, you know, the journalistic side of it too. Um, uh, yeah, so I would say consulting is where most of the jobs are for sure. Okay. So um, I thought I'd start out with, uh, you know, clarifying what archaeology is. <clears throat> and um, basically, um, it's the study of things uh, from the past. And those are often in the ground, but of course they're above the ground. You know, some of the big stone monuments, they're above ground and buildings and things like that. Um, and it's uh, the study of things from the past in the sense of trying to see how they are connected to the rest of society, what, what they can tell us about past uh, cultures, past societies. And that uh, creates problems because it's not always obvious what this stone flake uh, was used for or what it represents, things like that. So in many respects, we have to look at contemporary accounts of traditional technologies to find out you know, how they were used, how, are they how they were made, how they uh, fit into the social relationships and other things. Um, and, uh, and so we have to study the present in order to understand the past. Uh, so it's really the study of things um, in general, not just in the past, but, you know, you get involved in broader perspectives as well. Uh, and that's, as I mentioned before, the ethno-archaeology and what took me to Australia and the Maya Highlands and Southeast Asia and a number of other places because that's the, the area that I was really keenly interested in documenting. Um, and so it's what I would, uh, this obsession with uh, things is what I would call the archaeological perspective. Um, and each science has its own particular uh, window upon the world. You know, in biology, they're looking at living things. In geology, they're looking at the rocks. In astronomy, they're looking at the stars and trying to see how it relates to us and things like that. So every science has their own little window. And the window for archaeology is material things. Um, and basically, these material things, you know, if we want to understand what they were, how they, why they were important, what role they played, uh, we're really looking at all aspects of culture, um, not just the technology. The technology is a big part of it, but also the, how they relate to resources, the environment, the climates, uh, and also how they relate to... Um, Things like social relationships, political relationships. Uh, not all objects are going to have relationships like that, but some do. You know, if you find uh, a jade figurine, well, did that play a role in politics or ritual or social relationships? Or were they gifts? Were they uh, made for high status people? You know, what? So there's a whole series of questions that comes up when you start looking at things that you find in the ground. And we don't get too many jade figurines here, but we do have like jade adzes, uh, jade cutting tools, and axes, if you like. Um, so were these, did everybody have these? Was it just 
rich people that had them? Were, how long did it take to make them? You know, there's a whole series of questions that come up. And uh, so we go to some of the traditional jade uh, workers in China, for instance, to get an idea as to how long it might take to make something like that. And um, so there's, um, <clears throat> there's basically uh, whatever you're interested in, in terms of uh, studies or careers, you know, whether it's politics or economics or trade or social relationships or technology or the environment or animals or plants, it's, it's all there in the archaeological record. And you can specialize in any of those domains that you want, as well as in statistics and information, informatics and, uh, and other, you know, computer IT stuff and uh, lots of lots of other uh, domains. Um, so it's uh, or physics even or psychology. It's all there. <laughs> so if whatever your interests are, you can find a way of um, using those to in an archaeological context. Um, so. Uh, I think the difference that um, archaeology has with a lot of the more contemporary studies uh, and sciences is that it's got this enormous time depth. I mean, we are dealing with the past primarily. That's the main focus. Um, everything else is sort of uh, adjunct or subsidiary. And the the focus, the time depth that we get uh, extends from, you know, recent industrial mines and uh, industrial sites that were abandoned uh, that are no longer active to all the way back to the first stone tools two and a half million years ago. So it's an enormous uh, time scale. And, and over... You know, with that perspective, we can see some trends that are happening. Uh, we can see changes over time. And one of the big questions that uh, there are a number of major questions, but uh, one of the more interesting ones, from my perspective at least, is, is why some of these changes take place and what, what caused those changes uh, and what kinds of impacts uh, do those changes have for us today? I mean, are the same forces still at work or there's something new? Uh, what kinds of patterns in the changes are taking place? We've had lots of civilizations that have collapsed, lots and lots and lots of them. Um, and so, you know, the question obviously presents itself, uh, is our civilization going to collapse too? <laughs> so uh, things people are starting to talk about and worry about today for sure. Uh, and what are the limits? But um, at any rate, we've had uh, similar kinds of situations in the past. And um, so that's um, I th why I like to refer to uh, the archaeology as the science of once and future things, because we can anticipate some of the problems, some of the changes, some of the issues that are coming up. And uh, that title is actually from a textbook that I wrote back in 1993 called Archaeology, the Science of 
once and future things. So that's the textbook there. I, it's pretty hard to to find a copy these days, but it's been out of print for a while. But it was a fun one to write, and uh, so at any rate. Um, So I think we that's uh, basically what I'd like to say about uh you know what archaeology is and so what would you say is the difference between antiquarianism how do I say that antiquarianism antiquarianism <laughs> um and archaeology uh yeah that's a key issue um <clears throat> Basically, antiquarianism is um, the love of objects just for themselves. Uh, and so it's like the uh, early museums and a lot of the uh, art shops or the import shops that sell um, objects that have been dug up from the past uh, without any information about them or any context or anything like that. And so they're just beautiful objects. And a lot of people, a lot of the Romans, no, they, sorry, people in the Renaissance would go to places like Pompeii and Herculaneum and dig up some of the marble statues from the Roman period that were buried by Mount Vesuvius uh, in the volcanic eruption in 79 AD. And they'd put them in their houses and, you know, but they weren't really interested in the cultures that produced them or uh, anything else about the past cultures, they might think about them, but you know the main thing was that they wanted something pretty to put in their house. Something was old, and uh, and so that's antiquarianism. Uh, it's the love of things just for themselves, and certainly, um, you know, I think all archaeologists have. I think everybody has a little bit of that element in them, you know, because when you dig stuff up, you think, oh, this was something that was used 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, and there's a certain mystique about it, a certain, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's attractive, it's, it's interesting just in itself. Um, so I think all archaeologists really appreciate some of the finer works of art and the finer uh, bits of technology that they come across, but um, they go beyond that. You know, it's, uh, that's not enough. Whereas for art collectors, that's all that they really care about, and they don't really, um, well, at least in the past, maybe they've, some of them become more uh, conscientious these days, but uh, certainly the past museums and past art collectors a lot of them just uh, were digging stuff up, and they didn't—they didn't care if they were destroying the site. They just wanted to get at the object so that they could sell it. Uh, big monetary market and illegal antiquities, um, and uh, so archaeologists have that appreciation, uh, but their main goal is to understand the past to understand the past cultures. So that's the main difference. And the key, the key to understanding the past uh, is context. Um, context is uh, pretty much everything. Uh, in archaeology, it's never, never really a pristine context because things move around a bit. So you don't have them right in the context that they were, they were used in. Uh, 
as in, say, Pompeii, um, where everything was just left where it was in the houses. But things usually get thrown out in the trash, and so we have to reconstruct things. It's a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, you know, trying to trace back things and figure out what was going on and what happened. Um, and uh, but it, and so we get different um, different levels of pristineness, I guess, different coarseness of interpretation. Sometimes you can't say very much because the context has been so disrupted. Sometimes you can say a lot. Um, so the, the context is what enables you to, and by that I mean the relationship of one object to another or to its, uh, whether it's in a house or out in the trash or whether it's uh, where it comes from, as relation over time to other objects through time. Um, and uh, to emphasize the importance of context, I just want to digress for a minute here and say that uh, every object uh, that we excavate has got a little story to tell. And some of them have a lot of things to say, and some of them don't have a lot, but they're still important. Uh, we can ask of all these objects, you know, where they came from, um, who made them, who used them, uh, whether they were men or women, uh, what kind of work they did, what kind of what what they were used for, uh, how good they were, um, and how they ended up. All sorts of questions of just a single object, um, and we put them all together. And they create, uh, they create these stories um, together. And these stories, I like to uh, compare them to chapters in a book and sites, archaeological sites, to being like a book. And so I brought a book along with me here. And you can appreciate that, uh, you know, the book is composed of words and artifacts are basically like a word. Each word is on its own. Uh, and you can read the story in the book, but if you took uh, scissors to the book and started cutting out all the, all the words like this, well, you could pick up a word. Um, here it says G. Gee, thanks. Those are two words, two commas, and two spaces. So what does that mean? How does it fit into the story? It could fit in in a lot of different ways. Um, here's uh, another word, penny. So how does that fit in? Uh, if you yank these objects out of their context, all you're left with is this single word. And you can't tell how what... You know, where the story, you get an idea. Okay, well, we've got a penny and gee, thanks. Well, there are a number of possibilities that come up. But unless you have everything together in their proper relationship, uh, trying to figure out what the story is is almost impossible. And so, you know, here's, here's a bunch of, um, of artifacts that I brought in with me. Some stone here. Really wishing we had video so that people could have seen the dramatic cutting up of the book and, <laughs> and now the dramatic ar artifact. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, here they all are. 
Um, these are bits of stone, and some of them have quite a bit of story to tell. You know, you can tell, and some of them sometimes, whether it's man or woman made them, if it's a projectile point, and it was pretty obvious, used for hunting, um, and uh, things like that. But um, others of them are not nearly as informative. They're like, uh, you know, prepositions to or at or from uh, rather than, you know, uh, hunting or, you know, deer or something like that. Or, and some of them are really uh, kind of useless uh, for much else. They're like the spaces in a book or the punctuation. And so... Um, so, at any rate, the, um, the main point here is that antiquarians, when they go in and start uh, digging in sites and yanking stuff out and just uh, uh, removing things from their context, it's like cutting up books. It's like book burning, basically. Um, and there's only a certain number of these books that have been written. It's not an infinite renewable resource. And so it's really important for people to realize that when they go digging around uh, illegally and without authorization, without any training, uh, they're really destroying a lot of cultural heritage. Can you talk a little bit about at what point anthropology and archaeology intersect? Well, um, yeah, the the um, as I mentioned before, there's this uh, study of ethnoarchaeology, and ethnology is usually considered the main part of anthropology, the study of different cultures, and that includes different technologies. So that we use a lot of those observations from anthropology to create our models of what societies might have been like, band societies of hunting, hunting and gathering groups or tribal societies and what kinds of organizations they had, secret societies or um, other types of task groups or how they moved around the landscape. So we get a lot of information from anthropology and, um, and a lot of our models too. Like anthropology provide us with systems theory, for instance. Uh, I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but uh, maybe you talk about it. Uh, well, no, I'll, I'll bring it up in a minute. But at any rate, um, so a lot of the ex explanations for why cultures change uh, come from anthropology, uh, but archaeology has contributed a lot in that direction as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a very close relationship, I think. Um, so. Well, this is a good time for me to say you're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio. Uh, we have on today Brian Hayden, archaeologist, and we're talking about once and future, the science of once and future things archaeology. Uh, and I just want to point out that it was Brian that <laughs> just reminded me that I was supposed to do a station ID. So someone's on it at least. <laughs> so we're going on. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that uh, in terms of anthropology, that there are a number of fields of anthropology. Um, there's the ethnographic field. Uh, there's the linguistic field. 
and sometimes we can use linguistics to reconstruct uh, various aspects of uh, past cultures. Uh, it's called historical linguistics. So they can uh, find out what words were in existence, say, a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago. So if they have a word for slaves or copper or things like that uh, that existed a thousand years ago, then that helps us reconstruct what the cultures were like. So we can use linguistics as well. And, uh, and then there's physical anthropology or bioanthropology, as, as it's referred to now, or sometimes uh, paleo, um, uh, paleophysical anthropology. Uh, it's the study of human bones from the past. Um, and so we get uh, a lot of, we run into human bones from time to time. Um, and some people actually go out looking for them, but that's usually for very early time periods, early hominids, when we're going back to a million, two million, or 100,000 years ago, if we're looking for Neanderthals or Homo erectus or Australopithecines or things like that. So early hominid evolution uh, or even more recent um, developments. Uh, that's part of archaeology as well often. Um, but that's not uh, what I'm um, what I'm involved in myself, and that's not what most archaeologists are involved in. I make a distinction between bioarchaeology, bioanthropology, and archaeology or prehistory. So, um, so there's that difference, yeah. Um, and so I'm not going to be focusing on bioanthropology or or some the early hominid. Uh, kinds of things. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll talk about uh, some of the different kinds of archaeology in a minute, but I want to come back to um, the archaeological perspective just for a minute and tie that up. Uh, because, as I mentioned briefly before, uh, what we deal with the uh, vast majority of time is trash. Uh, stuff that's broken, stuff that gets thrown away, uh, industrial waste. Um, we don't find the the pristine artifacts that are still whole or that um, or that are valuable. Those things got taken away for the most part and uh, either put in burials, and that's one of the more interesting aspects of um, bioarchaeology, bioanthropology. Sorry. Uh, is that a lot of times you're dealing with burials, and that can provide enormous amounts of information about the cultures in terms of how much violence there was, in terms of uh, you know the burial goods that accompany people, how they, people were buried, who was buried. Uh, burial is a fairly recent kind of development that really only became common uh, about 15,000 years ago. Uh, before that, and when you start getting cemeteries. And cemeteries are really interesting in themselves. You know, why do we start getting cemeteries? Uh, before that, uh, very, very rare, and very few people were in the cemeteries. Very few people were buried at all before 15,000 years ago. Um, and in different parts of the world, it's even more recent than that. So, um, so... Ba yeah, to come back to <laughs> to uh, the archaeological perspective uh, on trash and things, 
So I was going to um, uh, get some of these words, these miscellaneous words, off my shirt here, and uh, look in the just want to look in the trash basket here to see uh, what we might find, and the, not much in the radio station trash basket. Um, mainly paper, which would not preserve archaeologically, except under very special circumstances. But um, but there is this piece of plastic, is a piece of packaging for uh, a wind socket. Says here, four ninety nine. Um, so, uh, how would an archaeological, uh, an archaeologist, approach this kind of trash? Well, uh, just to give you an example from from our contemporary uh, context here, this piece of plastic uh, actually tells you an enormous amount about our culture. Um, first of all, plastic is not a natural substance; uh, it's derived from oil. Uh, and so that implies that we've got uh, an oil industry, oil mining or oil drilling, some sort of extraction. It tells us that we've got a very sophisticated technology that can uh, transform plastic or oil into plastic. Uh, we have a very sophisticated manufacturing um, capability that can produce plastic of uniform thickness uh, without any blemishes or any variation in the surfaces that can be molded into specific shapes. This has got a little bubble in the middle of the plastic uh, shield here. Um, so just uh, this one piece of plastic tells us that we've got mining industries, drilling industries, oil industries on a large scale because all of this implies large-scale extraction rather than uh, individual craftsmen doing, you know, drilling for oil in their backyard or something like that, digging a pit to get oil out and then trying to make plastic. No, you need large industries for that. Large industries imply large populations. They imply large cities. They imply uh, support networks, transportation networks uh, to transport oil to plastic manufacturing. They imply large factories for the manufacture of this. They imply um, good levels of education and mathematics and engineering. Um, the machinery that's necessary for this implies the use of metals. Uh, for um, creating the stamps and the dyes, for uh, processing all of this material. All of this implies, in addition, large levels, uh, very high levels of education. You can't produce this with uh, a workforce that's ignorant. Moreover, this is throwaway stuff. This is not anything that's of great value. It implies very large volumes that are being produced um, and at levels that are extremely inexpensive. Uh, so we've got large labor forces, and uh, in order to use these and process them on a large basis, we need uh, general education of a fairly sophisticated level, means at least high school, uh, general education for everyone, if you have general education for everyone, 
so that they can read. They need access to information. So we need um, inf sources of information. All of this implies a very educated, large labor force, uh, and that is inconsistent with um, uh, hierarchical, well, I would not, not hierarchical, sorry, the wrong term, uh, with um, basically an uneducated group of people who do not, and once you educate people, they're going to demand some say in the pol political system, and so we have some form of democracies or representative democracies that have spread throughout the world ever since the Industrial Revolution, basically. So these are the kinds of relationships that we start looking for when we're looking at um, trash. Uh, and this is all just inferences just from one piece of garbage. Uh, and once you get education, you not only get uh, demands for increased, say, in, uh, in um, political affairs, and in how people are governed, but also we can uh, trace back uh, other equal rights movements, whether it's uh, for women or racial groups or whatever. We get uh, with industrial complexes, we get the breakdown of the extended family uh, so that people are much more individualistic uh, in values and everything else. We get uh, advertising that's in order to sell this kind of stuff. From one piece of garbage, we can Im imply or infer uh, a vast array of information about the culture. And, you know, if we have a lot more garbage, uh, we can make similar kinds of inferences. So, um, so that's the kind of perspective that we're looking for when we're dealing with uh, uh, materials from the past, uh, whether it's garbage or other things. And so when we get uh, when we get uh, some of these stone tools here, uh, we start asking ourselves, okay, well what what was the society like that produced these stone tools? Uh, and that's going to be, I think a, more of a topic to explore for our next, uh, our next discussion next week, but um, I just want to, you know, bring up the perspective that we're trying to trying to use at this point. So, um, and oh, I, I I should mention that in a lot of respects, um, the uh, these stone tools. Uh, are like they are the first industrial waste. It's the first industrial waste products uh, because when you when you find a piece of stone, uh, what you the main interest is to try to get a good edge, produce a good edge that's useful for cutting or for scraping uh, and doing some some kind of work. Um, and in producing that you produce a lot of waste. Just trying to get one good edge, you probably produce 100 pieces that are just garbage uh, and that get left behind and just uh, not very useful for anything at all. Uh, and so this is literally, this litters the landscapes around us <laughs> and for two and a half million years. 
the Stone Age really only came to an end uh, about uh, 3000 BC uh, when first metals started getting used, the Bronze Age. Uh, and so that's been the staple of all of our industrial work or technological work for the vast majority of uh, human existence. So, um, so it, it'd be um, interesting, uh, just a little thought experiment. It'd be interesting to, for listeners to try to imagine uh, if they would know how to get by without metal these days. If you were marooned on an island, you know, you got involved in a shipwreck and all you swam to shore without anything that uh, you had in your possession, um, yeah, if you didn't have any metal, what would you do? Do you know how to, uh, to choose rocks or to work rocks to uh, obtain something useful to make it possible to survive? So, or to hunt, or to do anything. <laughs> so, uh, for me, the study of stone has been really interesting, and uh, just trying to figure out because it's it's not something that's used by many cultures today. Uh, there are a few people that still remember some of the basics, but not too many. So, um, yeah, could anybody make metal from scratch today? You know, if you're marooned on an island, could you make metal? No, probably not. So what are the other options? Okay, and um, on the other hand, once you start getting um, domesticated plants uh, in many areas of the world, we start getting uh, the production of pottery. And when you get the production of pottery, um, then you start uh, getting sites that have tons and tons and tons of pottery sherds and uh, occasional other things, but uh, they're dominated by pottery. And uh, just as an aside, I had some discussions with other archaeologists who were trying to say that, oh, there's this male bias in archaeology because stone tools are associated with men. And I, said, I pointed out, well, no, it's just what we have to deal with. Um, but we've got a lot of other sites where pottery is the main thing that gets found, and that's all produced by women. <laughs> you know, so it depends on what you have to work with, and you know what you can infer from that. So it's not not always a matter of an inherent bias in the in the discipline or not. I mean, there are biases, but of all sorts and kinds. But how important they are, and um, I mean, there are a lot of women in archaeology, and always have been. So Mary Leakey being one of the more famous ones uh, in Africa. But um, at any rate. What, what are domesticated plants? Does that mean farming or does that actually mean bringing plants into a household? Um, no, it uh, has more to do with uh, just bringing plants into a household uh, because that's always happened um, into a home space, I guess you'd have to say. Um, so what that refers to, uh, domesticated plants and animals are ones that have had their genetic makeup changed by human interference. So they're not wild plants anymore. They've been changed. Either they're larger than the wild types or they don't 
reseed themselves as easily as the wild types or in animals. They might be smaller animals even or ones without as dangerous horns or less aggressive uh, dogs, for instance, uh, you know, or um, have more puppy kinds of uh, attributes and uh, different colors. So, uh, yeah, there are changes in colors and some animals as well. Uh, but it's some sort of genetic change that we can detect, and that's the definition of domestication. Um, and it's when people start interfering with uh, natural selection, either because they're keeping them in corrals or raising them or uh, keeping out certain seeds or protecting them from uh, other you know, natural predators or whatever it happens to be. And what do we know about why people did that and how, how early they started doing that? Uh, well, the first domestication is about 10,000 B.C., uh, occurs in the Near East and some parts of China. And why people started doing that is one of the big theoretical issues today. Uh, there are a number of different explanations, uh, different models of why that happened, uh, all the way from uh, population pressure to resource crises to um, um, to feasting, which is uh, something I've explored, um, the emergence of feasts and the importance of feast for producing more and more and more. Um, and, uh, and so we don't really know yet. There are a lot of, lot of ideas, a lot of arguments, um, and hopefully someday we'll find out. <laughs> I think COVID can show us that people definitely like to get domesticated pets in times of crises. <laughs> they do, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I just wanted to uh, try to tie up this general introduction of you know what archaeology mm -hmm. is with uh, some observations about some of the different types of archaeology that are recognized <clears throat> generally. Um, so... We've got um, basically a major division is uh, prehistory versus historic archaeology. Uh, so that, that means basically pre-recorded history, so pre-written history is what that refers to. And written history really begins around 5,000 B.C., 3,000 B.C., sorry, 5,000 years ago, um, 3,500 B.C. or so. Uh, in the Near East with the first cuneiform. Um, but it's, you know, it, it didn't arrive everywhere in the world uh, instantaneously. In large parts of the world, it never arrived, like Australia and North America, or at least North, yeah, and even North of Mexico, um, and good parts of South America as well, and other areas. So it varies from place to place. And then in the prehistoric area, um, we have uh, what's called the Stone Age, the Old Stone Age, the New Stone Age, Paleolithic and the Neolithic, Paleo being old and Lithic being stone. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that, you know, the Paleolithic goes from two and a half million to uh, basically 5,000 years ago as well. Uh, 
in some areas. Neolithic is largely contemporaneous with domestication. Um, so, at, the, at any rate, so there, those are major divisions. And then after that, we get into the Bronze Age, which is still Paleolithic or still prehistoric for the most part. Uh, and then the Iron Age. And when we get into the late bronze and early Iron Age, we start getting into recorded history in some areas in Rome. So we get classical archaeology, which deals with all the classical civilizations like the Greek and the Roman and the Sumerians and uh, a lot of the early Chinese civilizations, Zhou and, uh, and the Shang Dynasty and uh, places like that. Uh, so we, those are all considered classic. And then the classic Maya, uh, in the New World and the classic uh, Inca and the classic Aztec. They're all considered classic. And the Maya had writing. Uh, so, and the Inca had something equivalent. They had a recording system. Um, so those are all kind of specialties. And Egyptology is uh, another special area dealing only with civilizations as well. Um, so those are, I think, the uh, the major divisions. We also get medieval archaeology in Europe, and what else? Industrial archaeology, and uh, dealing with things from the industrial age, seventeenth century on, and then uh, even today, when we get uh, some nuclear nuclear uh, age kinds of remains, abandoned reactors, and things like that, we can talk about. You know, nuclear and uh, and computer age archaeology as well, uh, bringing us close up to the present. So, um, but the the area that we're mainly interested in in uh, British Columbia is colonial archaeology and prehistoric archaeology before there were written records, uh, and that's usually you know, synonymous with. Uh, native community remains and and sites. So um, so there's lots of different sub sub areas within the broad view of archaeology. Yeah, colonial archaeological archeolo archeolo uh, uh, excavations become fairly popular. Fur trade forts and things like that, uh, all up and down the coast here and in the interior as well. So, so um, I do we have examples of prehistoric, sophisticated technologies? Like how? Like when some if something is prehistoric, uh, and we don't have written accounts of how things were used how certain can we be of of the amount of sophistication that was actually involved in an artifact or in something we find? Um, yeah, and, and so then how early can we show examples of things that we actually think reveal some, you know, pr like complex uh, technologies and ways mm -hmm. of thinking about production? Yeah, well... It's a good question, and uh, it all depends on uh, you know your definition of complexity. Uh, but if we stick only with the production, uh, complex production, um, 
there are some things we can be pretty sure were pre were very complex. Some of the bifacial knives that get produced uh, or bi yeah, bifaces um, required quite a bit of skill and training and uh, and we can determine that in part by trying to replicate those things ourselves sort of in an experimental there's a whole range of experimental archaeology that um, is very important for interpreting the things from the past and especially in stone tools uh, it's, a, it's a big component um, but even then well I should start saying that there's some things we can be pretty sure required a lot of training, a lot of skill. Um, these very thin bifaces are probably very valuable as well. And ethnographically, we can look at them as well. And uh, down in California, uh, at the last century, like they were still using some of these uh, big obsidian bifaces that were very thin as wealth items and showing them in display and ritual displays and you know, so that was very informative, very interesting. And from our experience in uh, flint napping or making stone tools, um, we can say, yes, they should be valuable special items because of the skill required. Uh, other examples, uh, we go back to Neanderthal times, for instance, in Europe, and there's big arguments about uh, how much, or even before them, into Homo erectus times, you know, going back 100, 200,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago, um, they were making these uh, hand axes, which were bifacial uh, materials as well, that require special techniques. And people argue all the time about, you know, what this implied for the cognitive developments of these people, how smart they were, how, how much they could plan in the future, you know, how uh, their foresight abilities, uh, their linguistic, as a result, their linguistic abilities on the basis of the complexity of these artifacts. And, um, you know, I, I think some of the arguments are unrealistic. I, from, from my perspective, it takes a lot of intelligence, a lot of planning, a lot of skill, even to produce, produce the ha basic hand axes of, 100, 200,000 years ago. Uh, and then we get into things like Lovalois cores, which require a lot of uh, three-dimensional um, foresight and planning and steps to produce. Uh, all of those things, I think, um, are critical in understanding the intelligence levels of Neanderthals and Homo erectus. But there are a lot of people that were trying to argue that Neanderthals couldn't talk, they couldn't hunt, they didn't have foresight. You know, they're basically one step above um, gorillas and, you know, not very far along in the hominid line. I think it's ridiculous uh, from my perspective. Um, but at any rate, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. We have with us in the studio Dr. Brian Hayden, archaeologist. You are listening to Folk View Radio on CKTZ 89.5 Cortez Community Radio. I'm your host, Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and I am joined today by Brian Hayden, archaeologist. We encourage you to call into the studio during our short upcoming music break to ask Brian your archaeological questions. You can reach the studio at 250-935-0200, or you can email the letter U at 
folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. And now we will have a little music break. Opens his eyes, falls in love at first sight with the girl in the doorway. What beautiful lines, how full of life after thousands of years. What a face to wake up to. He holds back a sigh as she touches his own. She dusts off the bed where till now he's been sleeping under miles of stone. The dried fig of his heart under scarab and bone starts back to its beating. She carries him home in a beautiful boat. He watches the sea from a porthole in storage. He can hear all she says as she sits by his bed and one day his lips answer her in her own language. The days quickly pass, he loves making her laugh. The first time he moves, it's her hair that he touches. She asks, are you cursed? He says, I think that I'm cured. Then he talks of the Nile and the girls in bulrushes. In New York he is late, the 
in a glass-covered case He pretends he is dead People crowd round to see him But each night she comes round And the two wander down The halls of the tomb That she calls a museum Often he stops to rest But then less and less Then it's her that looks tired Staying up asking questions He learns how to read From the papers that she Is writing about him Corrections, it's his face on a book. More and more come to look. Families from Iowa, Upper West Siders. Then one day it's too much. He decides to get up, and his chaos ensues. He walks outside to find her. She's using a cane, and her face looks too pale. But she's happy to see him. As they walk, he supports her. She asks, Are you cursed? But his answer's obscure. Sandstorm of flashbulbs and rowdy reporters. Such reanimation, the two tour the nation. He gets out of limos, he meets other women. He speaks of her fondly, their nights in the museum. But she's just one more rag now, he's dragging behind him. She stops going out, she just lies there in bed in hotels and whatever. Towns they are speaking, then her face starts to set, and her hands start to fold, and one day the drop figure. Stops its beating. Long ago on the ship, she asked why pyramids. He said, Think of them as an immense invitation. She asked, Are you cursed? He said, I think that I'm cured. Then he kissed her and hoped that she'd forget that question. Please, a man ain't supposed to live alone. No, that ain't what 
of the age I wondered amongst themselves what I would do next after all that I'd found in my travels around the world was there anything left gentlemen I said I've studied the maps and if what I am thinking is right there's another new world at the top of the world for whoever can break through the ice I looked around the room That way I once had And I saw that they wanted belief So I said all I got Are my guts and my God Then I paused And the Annabelle Lee 
Oh, the Annabelle saw their eyes shine, the most beautiful ship in the sea. My Nina, my Pinta, my Santa Maria, my beautiful Annabelle That spring I set sail, the crowd wave from shore, on board the crew with their hats. But I never had family, just the Annabelle Lee, so I'd never had cause to look back. I just set the course north, and I studied the charts, and towards dark I drifted towards sleep. And I dreamed of the fire. Deep harbor I'd find Past the ice for my inability After that it got colder And the world got quiet It was never quite day or quite night And the sea turned the color of sky Turned the color of sea Turned the color of ice Till at last all around us Was fastness, one vast glassy desert of arsenic white And the waves that once lifted us Sifted instead into drifts Against Annabelle's sides And the crew gathered closer At first for the comfort But each morning would bring a new set Of tracks in the snow Leading over the edge of the world Till I was the only one left And after that it gets cloudy But it feels like I lay there for days and maybe for months But Annabelle held me, the two of us happy just to think back on all we had done Chopped up her mainsail for timber I told her of all that we still had to see And as the frost turned her moorings to nine tail And the wind lashed her sides in the cold I burned her to keep me alive every night In the loving embrace of her hold And I won't call it rescue What brought me back here to The old world to drink and decline And pretend that the search for another new world Was well worth the burning of mine But sometimes at night In my dreams comes the singing Of some unknown tropical bird And I smile in my sleep Thinking Annabelle Lee Has finally made it to another new world Yes, yeah, sometimes at night 
In my dreams comes the singing of some unknown tropical boom And I smile in my sleep Thinking Annabelle Lee has finally made it to another new Welcome back to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. That was just a selection of what I consider to be archaeologically influenced music all by Josh Ritter. So today in the studio, I have Dr. Brian Hayden with us to discuss archaeology, the science of once and future things. Professor Hayden. We have covered thousands of years in the first hour. It, it's a, millions, 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 millions of uh, <laughs> no small feat. We we can do great things here at Folk University. Would you even do a greater task, which is to summarize those millions of years in just a line or two? Yeah, I don't know if I could do it in a line, but at any rate, we did talk about what what archaeology is, and you know what its special perspective is. Uh, material things, and uh, we also um, talked about how it's different from antiquarianism and how important context is if you want to read the book of the past, if you like, or the archaeological sites. And uh, we always also talked about trash and how archaeology is trashed <laughs> now, how it deals with trash. Um, and... Uh, what else? The different kinds of archaeology, you know, the prehistoric versus the historic and Bronze Age, Iron Age, colonial, medieval, classic, Egyptology kind of archaeology. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's where we ended up pretty much. Um, and 
we'll go on and, and talk about some of the some of the history of archaeology, I think, in terms of how it's developed and what kinds of things it's contributed. Um, I haven't talked about why why governments fund archaeology at this point, um, but um, might mention a little bit about that. And I think uh, initially there was a big interest in archaeology in Europe, where the discipline really got going uh, because of nationalism that arose in the 17th, 18th century and people trying to establish national identities and national uh, histories, that whether it's Celtic or Slavic or uh, Roman or whatever it happened to be. Uh, and so it featured into a lot of political agendas at the time. And uh, it's become recognized that these are heritage uh, features of value uh, for those and other reasons today. And so it's continued to be funded uh, and obviously features very prominently in native land claims and things like that um, today. So it's, it's gotten a lot more attention. It's become much more sophisticated, much more of a, of a broadly-based funded um, uh, in many respects by industry now for contracts and for developments and things like that. But, uh, yeah. So And then, of course, there's always the, you know, the more intellectual reasons of just curiosity about the past and wanting to know how long people have been here and where we came from and things like that. So part of the broader science agenda that came out of the Enlightenment and just trying to... Uh, I think also... Uh, there was this um, attempt by uh, industrialists and people in the Enlightenment uh, to try to um, blunt some of the claims of the religiously based political groups in the past. Like church and state used to be the same in medieval times and uh, even in Roman times and before. Uh, so there's always been a very close connection. And when the Enlightenment came along and and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the attempts to produce industry and commerce, uh, that was a whole different interest group that tried to um, get out from the under the control of the church and to promote industry and to promote commerce as opposed to the land-based feudal systems that existed before. And so one way of discrediting uh, some of the authority of the church would be to show that the Bible was not, in fact, you know, a literal word for word. Um, and so I think it played a, a, much, a fairly big role in that whole uh, domain as well. And that's why it was funded as many of the other exploratory sciences were geology, uh, in the past as well to uh, create another um, another political uh, um, dialogue and uh, scheme ideology, if you like, um, that would support the industrial uh, science-oriented uh, direction of these other interests in society rather than the Bible-based kind of uh, religious-based uh, authorities that uh, emerged in feudal and previous times. So 
So why archaeology is certainly the study of these vast periods of time, the science of archaeology didn't actually arise until many of the other sciences themselves uh, arose. Is that is that correct? Uh, it is correct, um, but there's some interesting twists involved. Uh, like we usually trace the origin of archaeology back to uh, a Danish museum curator named Christian Thompson uh, back in the 18th, uh, well, he started, he became curator in the 1810s, 18-teens, um, but he only, and he, the thing about uh, Christian Thompson, which is really interesting, is that he was put in charge of the collections of the museum, and he had to create some sort of an organization for them because uh, up until he arrived, uh, there were museums were sort of proto-museums. They were storehouses of interesting things people found uh, either on their lands. And we had a little, on Cortez Island, we had a little exhibit uh, about wonder cabinets. Um, and these were collections of, you know, stuff that people brought back from their colonial expeditions to, or things that they'd found on their own property, dug up, you know, a piece of flint or an old sword or an old plowshare or, you know, interesting pottery that they brought back from the Amazon. Or, and it all got dumped in the same room and, you know, without any real organization or anything other than maybe it came from the Amazon or from Africa or, you know, smoking pipes or everything and anything got included textiles, you know, it's, uh, it was just a hodgepodge of stuff. And uh, all the major uh, industrialists and colonial figures had these little wonder cabinets in Europe. And, uh, you know, sometimes they got fairly big and occupied wings of castles and things like that. At any rate, the uh, but when they passed on, they didn't know what to do with all this stuff, so they gave it to the national governments in many cases. So the national governments started accumulating all this stuff from colonial expeditions and, uh, and um, people that had come back from spending time overseas or, as I say, found stuff on their property. Uh, and Christian Thompson basically was given the job of you know, sorting it all out and making some sense of it. And, um, and this was a time period when the, the, the word of the Bible was still fairly, very strong and where a lot of people believe that the uh, world was created 6,000 B.C., 6,004 B.C., to be precise by some calculations, um, although there had been... Uh, speculations before uh, among the Romans and the Greeks and even the Babylonians that, you know, there had been previous epics because pre they'd found things in the ground. Uh, but it was all speculations. Um, and, um, and sort of on the side. So Christian Thompson uh, came up with this scheme of classifying things. Uh, he started sorting things out rather than by who gave it to the museum or where, which province it came from or which country it came from or continent it came from. He started sorting things out um, in terms of technology. 
And um, this was a little stroke of genius uh, because in at the time, you know, evolution was not something that was uh, talked about or a concept that was um, very popular or widespread. You know, it, it did appear some notion of going from a gold age to or a silver age to a gold age you find in some of the Greek writers, but it's all speculation. Um, and Christian Thompson, you know, I like to think of him as having all this stuff and putting them on different tables uh, so that all the stone things went on one table and all the things made out of bronze went on another table and all the things made out of iron went on another table. And, uh, and after he'd sorted things out that way, who knows why he did it? It was just sort of a technological thing that made sense to him. Um, he realized that there may be a sequence involved here, that there was a time, because these were, I mean, I think he was seeing the stone tools, uh, some of them at least, as being cutting implements, and that's basically what they are. Um, but, you know, bronze knives and bronze swords, they're cutting implements too. And iron swords and iron knives, they're cutting implements too. And so I think he realized that they're all serving the same function, um, but that uh, one's more primitive, if you like, in, you know, in quotes, uh, or more, more difficult to make at any rate, um, or not as effective as cutting, in cutting. So, you know, he, he started thinking, well, maybe the stone tools came before the bronze, and the bronze came before the iron, because iron is much more difficult to smelt than bronze. And he must have known that. And so he developed in the 18 teens and 20s this idea that there was an evolution of culture and technology from what we can what we call today the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And because this was such a radical notion at the time, he sat on it for 10 or 20 years before publishing it. And he finally published it in the 1830s, uh, 1833, I think, um, as a proposition for this evolution. And this is the first time we get people talking about evolution in a scientific way, in the scientific concourse. This is 50 years before Darwin went to the Galapagos. This is uh, before you know we get the geological epics uh, being discussed, the antediluvian uh, epics. Uh, so it's, it was groundbreaking. It was uh, completely revolutionary uh, for the time period. And, um, but, you know, part of science is composed of two parts, usually, <laughs> um, and that is a, uh, an idea part where you start formulating, you know, how things happened and, uh, and how they progressed, uh, or these models, if you like, of how the world works, uh, these uh, epistemologies, if you like. Uh, and, uh, and as I say, the, the Greeks and the Romans and the Sumerians, they had these ideas too, or some similar ideas that, of that there were different epochs, different periods, and, and an evolution. Um, 
But then the second part of science, and the thing that's really distinctive about it, is going out and testing these ideas. And Christian Thompson didn't actually do the testing himself. It was somebody else working in the museum um, named Jens Warsay. And uh, there was some work being done in geology. They were starting to realize by the 1830s that the geological strata actually were like layers in a cake, you know, and you have to put down the bottom layer first and then the middle layer and then the top layer so that there's a time sequence in terms of which layers came first and which came later. And he started applying that to a geological strata. And uh, Jens Warsay realized that a lot of these archaeological sites were also stratified. We get the bottom layers and the middle layers and the top layers. And he said, well, okay, if, this is the hypothesis, if Christian Thompson is right and there's been an evolution, and if the geologists are right that the bottom layer came first and the middle, and then next the middle layers and then last the, the upper layers, then we should find the stone tools in the bottom layers and the iron tools in the top layers and the bronze tools in the middle layers if they all occur in the same site. And so he went out and this was his big test. He excavated first archaeological excavations except for uh, ones sponsored by Thomas Jefferson in the New World. Uh, but he was digging into mounds. They weren't stratified. Uh, so he was he was dealing with something else. But in Europe, um, and so Thomas Jefferson didn't come up with the idea of evolution or anything like that. He was interested, but uh, it's, that wasn't his 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 focus. But it was in Dan in Denmark, and uh, so Warsay conducted these archaeological tests, and basically that's what all archaeological excavations are. They're tests of ideas. Um, and if something doesn't add up, then we have to reconfigure our ideas. Um, and he found, in fact, yes, Christian Thompson was right. We get the stone tools at the bottom, iron, iron tools at the top, and uh, bronze tools in the middle. And so that confirmed this idea that there has been a cultural evolution over time. And that set up the entire discipline of archaeology for the next hundred years, uh, trying to figure out what the stages, the specifics of the stages are, because that was very coarse-grained. Uh, but if you want to find out, uh, and it became obvious that you could find uh, identify different cultures, like not just Stone Age culture, but different tribes, if you like, different kinds of culture within the Stone Age, the New Stone Age versus the Old Stone Age, the ones that uh, came later in time, the ones that produces hand axes versus the ones that produce blades. Um, so it, be, you know, it became a, a challenge to try to define things in a lot more fine-grained um, understanding of what was happening in the past. And then, of course, with the nationalism that arose in 19th century Europe, they wanted to know which styles were Celtic styles, which styles were Slavic styles, which kinds of artifacts were related to the Goths or the Visigoths or Germanic tribes. Uh, so all these featured into trying to identify 
specific cultures. And then um, the other major, major focus of work in archaeology, once this evolutionary uh, framework had been established, was trying to figure out how old these things were, you know? And it, at, at the beginning, you know, all you could say was, well, it looks like a long time ago, but <laughs> how long ago? You know, it was more than 6,000 years B.C. Yeah, it looks like a lot more, but how much more? Uh, and that was a really, really big challenge. Um, together with geology that was developing sort of in concert with this, they started figuring out, uh, well, what geological epochs occurred. So you get the antediluvian before the flood, you know, uh, before Noah's flood <laughs> kind of concepts. Um, and then gradually the concept of ice ages emerged and that and different sea levels and different uh, levels of terraces. Like around Lillooet, for instance, we get these incredible uh, riverine terraces that were out outwashed terraces from the glaciers melting and depositing all the junk that they had in them uh, as large river terraces and then the rivers cut down through them. Uh, so that they're glacial features. And these became recognized in France and other locations as well as different sea levels. Uh, and so people began to piece together uh, geological history, but they still didn't have a very good handle on you know, just how much time was elapsing between events. They could look at uh, different kinds of animals that existed in the past, uh, the past few million years uh, that no longer exist, you know, in Europe. Uh, we also get the cave paintings that started to be discovered uh, with depictions of mammoths and saber and uh, not saber-toothed tigers that weren't there, but lions and, and hyenas and leopards and woolly mammoths or woolly rhinoceroses and all sorts of other animals that just didn't exist there anymore and didn't exist anywhere anymore, uh, including musk oxen. And, and so people started to put together some sort of a glacial chronology uh, using fossil animals to a large extent. And so uh, all of this, you know, was sort of happening at the same time and gradually began refining uh, some of the periods and the epochs in prehistory uh, especially in the Stone Age, uh, when you start getting hand before hand axes, during hand axes, and then with the Neanderthal discovery of Neanderthal skeletons, you get fossil kinds of humans in Europe as well. Uh, so it was really um, basically driven to a large extent. The development of archaeology was driven to a large extent by developments in uh, in Europe during the the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Um, yeah, so uh, it was exciting time for sure. And uh, what else do I want to say? Um, oh, I, I should mention that um, the um, that there's been a lot of work uh, from 1950. Uh, until the present in developing other techniques of dating, find, finding out how old uh, 
deposits are. So before that, it was pretty much all based on geology and fossil animals and estimates for how long it might take for glaciers to form and to disappear and things like that and for sea levels to change. You know, but they were all basic argument, uh, basic estimates without any good foundation, any empirical foundation. Uh, but starting in 1950s, uh, when we start getting into nuclear uh, production of nuclear uh, materials and uh, nuclear physics, we start realizing there are radioactive isotopes. And so carbon, radiocarbon dating is the most well-known um, that developed around 1949, actually, um, so that when people talk about uh, the years before present, uh, that's the, the traditional radiocarbon date BP, before present. That really means before 1950. <laughs> They're all calibrated. All the dates are calibrated as before 1950. So when they say before present, it's not actually before present. It means before before the present in 1950. <laughs> um but at any rate, the, the main point is that that was only the first. And there's been uh, uranium-thorium dating for even older material. Uh, there's been uh, all sorts of other kinds of means of dating things, thermoluminescence, uh, fission track dating. Uh, there's, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So that now there's dozens of different ways that we can use to date the archaeological deposits. And it's really revolutionized archaeology. Before, before uh, the emergence of uh, isotopic, atomic isotopes and using those for dating, uh, trying to figure out how old things were occupied probably 90% of most of the energy of, and time of archaeologists and also identifying the specific culture. Uh, after the dating, uh, probably 10% or less of the energy and time goes into dating uh, because it's so easy to do now. And, um, and a lot more energy and time has been devoted in trying to understand what the cultures were like, to trying to reconstruct the cultures and explain changes in culture and things. So that's really where things are at now. And uh, more recently, there's been a lot done in terms of trying to understand ideologies and symbolism and uh, and also cultural social identities, how those are constructed, why they're important. Um, and so it's been much more on the social, political, ritual, uh, symbolic aspects of, of cultures in the past. Uh, but as we saw from some of the remains here, uh, most of the stuff we dig up is hard to relate to those aspects, but there are some things that we can deal with, and which I have actually dealt with too. So, so when you were going through the garbage earlier in the first uh, part of the show, our garbage, yes, um, and we and you found uh, a plastic bit of packaging, <laughs> and it was really impressive what you could determine or know about the culture from that piece of garbage. But what the thing that I kept thinking about is globalization and the ways that mm -hmm. globalization 
change the cultural or the place aspect of looking at things through time and place. Um, but then as you're speaking now, what I'm also realizing is that at least global trends are not new, that we have some aspect of global influence or go global trade perhaps way back to the beginning of, of, of what we are looking at through archaeology. Can you talk a little bit about how you deal with globalization and early global exchange or trade and events when using archaeology? And can you even begin to make sense of that with all the other things that you're looking to make sense of? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The um, It's a good point. Um, and trade uh, is, uh, is it's a little bit not on the same scale as global globalization today because with industries uh, we need you know rare metals from Africa to build our computers and things like that so uh, and in Roman times they needed to they had grain deficits uh, I was just talking about that with a friend uh, recently um, and so they had to import huge amounts of grain from Africa and you know so is in Greek times as well so those are really global economies in classic periods as well, uh, encompassing. Uh, well, listen, there were <laughs> there, there were there was Roman trade in Vietnam. Uh, yeah, there's some sites there that have Roman materials that look like they're from traders, um, and so and certainly from India too. India was getting into Southeast Asia, of course, uh, from early Buddhist times and or early Hindu times, sorry. Uh, but Rome was in there as well, and so they were going all over the place. And then with colonial times, you know, it just exploded. But we can trace similar kinds of developments going back um, even into the Upper Paleolithic, say 30,000 years ago. In Europe, uh, we, get, uh, we can trace different kinds of materials like whether they're seashells that we know came from the Atlantic and got traded into Czechoslovakia or Germany or even into the Ukraine, uh, or seas from shells from the Red Sea. We can trace, you know, the origin of these shells and where they ended up, but also stone, stone material as well. Uh, and, you know, they travel hundreds of kilometers, um, sometimes up to a 1,000 kilometers. Uh, and so we know that, you know, there's this this exchange interaction going on. And we get similar kinds of interaction in North America, um, at least by Hopewell times, if not before, say, 1000 BC. Uh, so a little bit later, but it's still happening. And then, of course, uh, with in Mexico and uh, with the Aztecs and also with the Maya, they were trading uh, cacao, chocolate all over the place, as well as obsidian and, you know, huge, huge uh, interaction spheres and trade spheres. Uh, and interestingly enough, they're almost all dealing with prestige items like chocolate, shells, um, obsidian, uh, copper, um, uh, but some also economic things, like I mentioned uh, the Romans were bringing in grain from tons and tons and tons of grain from uh, North Africa. They couldn't keep their empire going without it, as well as slaves and furs from Europe and, you know, just 
it goes on and on. So yes, it's it's, but it's been I would argue it's been elite driven uh, for elite purposes, uh, whether for prestige objects to keep the political economy going. Uh, I mean, how do you motivate people to to be in your debt? You give them things that they want, um, and that and basically. And, is in terms of prestige objects, objects of high value, whether it's gold or jade or shells or uh, exotic kinds of materials or furs or special breeds of dogs or whatever it happens to be, amber. Uh, it goes on. The lists are very impressive. And uh, the same thing was going on in British Columbia as well between the coast and the interior. The side where I've been working, we get... Uh, dentalium shells from the coast, you know, 300, 400 kilometers away. Um, and the jade goes much further than that, too. So nephrite in BC, it's called jade. BC jade, but it's actually nephrite, which is very similar to jade, almost the same thing. So, yeah. And how do we, I can imagine how we would know, for instance, if someone was trading jade um, and you find that somewhere where that wouldn't usually have jade or obsidian and you find that in a place that didn't usually have obsidian but how do you know the grain or cocoa beans were being traded how is that we're finding written records or we find remains well in terms of the uh, in terms of the wheat that was being uh, uh, shipped to uh, Greece and Rome we have the written records yeah um, and so we have the amounts even, and, you know, there's shiploads and shiploads and shiploads of, of, uh, grain coming in. And, you know, without that, the empires would have collapsed. Um, in the terms of cacao, we have written records, but we also know that, uh, cacao, the cacao bean only grows in Belize and in the Pacific coast of Guatemala and neighboring Mexico, and so uh, if, it, if it shows up in, or the residues show up in uh, Highland, Mexico, we know that it had to come from, you know, where it, where it came from, a uh, thousand kilometers away. So, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the Pacific coast of Guatemala was shipping 15 tons of cacao beans to the Aztec capital every year at the time of conquest. So, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's probably what made the uh, Mayan economy go to, sort of like the gold or the oil of, of uh, the time period. So, and, and we can link, you know, these objects. It's not, these aren't just, uh, you know, haphazard occurrences, you know, trade because somebody in... Um, in the Aztec capital, things was fond of, you know, chocolate drinks and uh, and you know wanted to get some. No, this was part of uh, a much larger economy, and uh, and so that's why this this notion of uh, cultural systems is so important um, because it links. Well, I'm going to get into this in a bit, but <clears throat> there, there are basically two views, two polar opposite views of how the world works. Um, that uh, you can find these different views in most sciences, 
uh, certainly in the life sciences. Um, but one view says that everything is connected and there are patterns. So that's the systems view of how the world works or how our, how our cultures and biology works. And the other view is that uh, no, things are more or less random occurrences and that everything sort of gets stuck together by chance and that there's no real system that's uh, operating. Um, the idea of <clears throat> the, the random association of elements that was pretty popular in the early 20th century with Franz Boas, he's a major anthropologist, the major anthropologist of the time, um, but some of the early diffusionists too. And they, they basically viewed cultures as you know, developing these different traits on a random basis, and uh, there was no real explanation of why these traits developed, you know, whether they were using copper. Well, it's because of a connection of they bumped into somebody who had copper and thought it would be nice to start using copper, or people that started writing or figuring out numbering systems. It was because of an individual genius, you know, that figured out this, and so one group did and one group didn't, or uh, they start using chocolate beans, one group did because they liked it, and another group didn't because they didn't like it. Um, so it was really haphazard, and each individual culture was unique and special because of these things. Um, and to a certain extent that, you know, there are elements of truth in that. But on the other hand, you have these other groups that uh, view all of these things as being interconnected. And you can't just adopt, um, you can't just start importing uh, seashells without having, you know, a good reason to do that. And the reason is that you've got some people that are richer than others and want to display that, for instance. And so in order to start importing seashells from long distances, you need some sort of inequalities in the society and some way of uh, maintaining wealth uh, as opposed to everybody sharing everything. Uh, acquiring expensive things, things that require a lot of effort to make or to acquire, does not make sense in an egalitarian society where everybody shares everything. Uh, when I was working in Australia, one of the big problems there was to get uh, people to uh, to uh, <laughs> to earn money to buy things because they would they would earn money and then they'd go out and buy a car or binoculars or boots and somebody would come along and say oh this is a nice pair of boots I'd love to love to borrow those if we could uncle uh, or brother and that would be the last time you'd see the boots or the car the you know binoculars so it made no sense to do all that stuff to get things because it would just get shared around you'd never benefit get any benefit of it yourself so are we running out of time Really? Okay. Well, we'll have to pick up. But anyway, systems theory, uh, where everything is connected, was a huge um, development in the 1960s uh, that came with, the, uh, with systems theory in general and influenced the interpretation of culture and archaeological remains.
I, 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 I did tell Brian at the beginning of this, I said, you know, two hours seems like it's a lot, but it goes very quickly. Um, and I have lots and lots of questions, but we are lucky enough that we are going to have you back next week. Can you give us a tiny little preview of some of the things we'll talk about next week? Yeah, well, we'll talk about uh, BC archaeology and, uh, you know, the kinds of, of concepts and things that uh, are relevant to understanding BC archaeology. And we'll talk about trade in BC, among other things, and uh, stone tools. And, you know, one's made by women, one's made by men. Um, and, um, yeah, some of the different developments that have occurred in the past in BC. The, I, I can't wait. Um, we are super lucky to have you here uh, on Folk U Radio. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for the first of this two-part series with Dr. Hayden on archaeology, the science of once and future things. You can send your questions or ideas for Dr. Hayden or about future shows, and I will strive to find answers or interesting neighbors that will get us all to think a bit more about the topic. Until next time, this has been Manda O. Fox Gillespie with Folk U Radio. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U, or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. This show is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't